This is the reading of God's word. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray this morning. Oh, gracious heavenly Father, we are here Sunday after Sunday sitting under the preaching of your word. And Lord, the reminder today is that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of your mouth through your word. And so we ask you now that you will feed us your word this morning. And we just pray for your spirit to soften our hearts, to open the eyes of our hearts so that we may see you and see how faithful you are in our lives, how faithful you are in the church, how faithful you were to Paul and the church here in Thessalonica. And so we just pray that you will bless our time together. Lord, we give you all the glory. We give you all the praise. All these things we ask in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, whether you've been at Gateway for a short period of time uh, or have been here for a number of years, you understand that being involved in the life of the church is both a challenge and a blessing. And so the church is a unique place, really, where, where people from all walks of life come together because of the common faith we have in the gospel. And there really is no place on earth like the church, where we are united, stand, standing side by side, right, to know, to apply, to proclaim Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's our church statement, to know, to apply, and to proclaim. Again, you will not find a place in the world where so many people set aside their differences in the context of the church to worship together. And so if you look around you today, you will see that. You know, I've had the honor, or my family and I have had the honor of serving alongside of you, alongside of you the, the past six and a half years here at Gateway. And it's really just been a joyous experience to serve alongside of you. It's something we've been thinking about quite often as we sort of await our pending departure. And so, you know, I could say without a doubt that in studying this letter, as I just mentioned, and listening to our brothers preach this summer, has been, I've been reminded of sort of Gateway and how Gateway reflects the church here in Thessalonica. I mean, we're not a perfect church, but this church really is a reflection of Gateway and, and and Rod and I have, have discussed that so many times, even before we, 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 he was thinking about just going through First Thessalonians. You know, we were saying, man, there's, there's so many similarities here of how faithful the church was and how faithful Gateway is and how much they adore the gospel. And so it's no easy task to be committed to a like-minded group of believers in any capacity. But all of you have served, have been faithful, have adored the gospel, week after week, just like the church here. But this morning, it's really not about the church. As much as I, was, I would like to give you praise, it's about God. 
The title says it all, and I think Paul concludes this book with such a fitting reminder that God is faithful. And we're going to see that here in a couple moments. But before we jump in, allow me to give you some context for this book as a whole. Really, I'm going to give sort of a, a quick flyover of general observations that set up our text this morning. And so, just a little bit of a background, okay? Uh, it's right up here on your screen. From 1 Thessalonians 1 to 3, we sort of, we have Paul just looking back, and I call it personal reflections from Paul. And so, um, if you recall, we, we go in chapter 1, and there's a hope in salvation, where the foundation of the church is the gospel, and that's what Rod talked about this morning. And then, we, we, and then it continues on with the hope found in service, where, where Paul is reflecting on gospel-centered conduct and gospel-centered leadership and how he served the church. And then it continues, the hope found in our mutual love for each other, but that was found in chapter 3. And then the past month or so, we've been going through chapters 4 and 5, where um, Paul's sort of looking ahead, and he's giving us practical instructions. And so from there, we, we find in the first part of chapter 4, the hope in our sanctification. And then it continues, the hope in sorrow and comfort, where, where Daryl Young preached, and he reminded us that we could grieve, but we grieve with hope. We grieve with the end in mind. And then last week, we have the hope in our calling to do God's work. The, all the imperatives that were listed, the calling we have as Christians, the calling we have as a church. And so, as we, I say so often, the church, this church, um, sort of Paul highly respected, he highly esteemed the church. I mean, he was encouraged by their faith and love. And so, this letter was a very heartfelt pastoral letter to a congregation that love the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is only fitting to see Paul conclude with a parting prayer and a word of encouragement, ultimately pointing the church to God himself. Although saying goodbye can sometimes be a sad occasion in the life of the church, there is a type of hope in Paul's goodbye. So this is not just a simple farewell, but a hope to look forward to in the coming ages. Similarly, in our goodbyes within the church, there always, there's always a hope to look forward to together. And so my aim this morning is this. Paul reminds the church that God, the faithful one, empowers Christians to live, work, and hope in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we hope in the faithful one, dear church, and we anticipate we live in the light of his coming. We begin with our first point of our text this morning. It's what I call the power of God in the life of the church, verses 23 and 24. The power of God in the life of the church. In part, and this is sort of Paul... Uh, uh, parting reminders from Paul. Now look at our text. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Here's the first thing that Paul reminds us of today. And it's very simple because we've talked about it before. 
It's our, sanctific- our sanctification really is the work of God in us. And so very plainly, sanctification can be defined, and, and really to put simply, a pro- the process of being made holy in the Christian life. To give us a clear definition, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Because of God's grace that works for us and through us, it frees us from sinfulness and forms our lives to Christ's likeness. If you were here with us back in chapter 4, Rod alluded to the three types of sanctification. First, he talked about positional sanctification, where that's the moment we are saved and we are set apart from the world unto God. And then he discussed progressive sanctification. And that, this emphasizes what we're talking about now. This is God's work in us and our obedience or work through God's grace. This is the real continuing transformation in the Christian life. It's what we're living in right now. And then we have our perfect sanctification. And this is realized when we are made new in Christ, when we finally see him again. And that's the hope in which we are living. We anticipate that perfect sanctification. And so, remember, today we are free, really, from the power of sin. And that's good news. But one day... One day, dear friends, we will be free from the presence of sin. We'll be in the presence of perfect sanctification. I think it's important to be quickly reminded of this because Paul sort of circles back to the point of sanctification in our text after listing the imperatives in our previous section. Think about that. Okay, he lists the, the, the imperatives, the commands of what Christians should do. Then he goes back to sanctification. And here's why. We cannot purpose to act or live out these imperatives without realizing the power is coming from God. And so if we recall last week, Chris did a marvelous job in listing the commands or the imperatives that the church is called to do by the Apostle Paul. If you recall, he listed all 17 of them towards the very end. And if you look at your Bibles, I want to read verse 22, uh, chapter 5, verse 22. It says this, abstain from every form of evil. Now, aren't you glad that Paul didn't conclude the letter with verse 22? Abstain from every form of evil? That would have maybe left the church with a couple questions. But thankfully, Paul gives us the answer as to how how to do all these imperatives, how to abstain from all forms of evil. And so I want us to uh, to realize three reminders in our first point this morning from Paul. First, we have a God who is a source of our sanctification. God who is a source of our sanctification. Now may the God of peace himself. And so Paul emphasizes the God of peace himself. Peace a word we're somewhat familiar with in the Old Testament, maybe in the Old Testament, that word shalom. But the phrase here has far more greater meaning than God bringing our situations sort of um, in order, which is true. 
okay? But that source of sanctification, the source of our well-being as Christians and blessing is from God himself. And really what this phrase means, it means that God is our complete satisfaction. He is our happiness. He is our blessing that we experience in the Christian life. Therefore, Paul is saying this, you who were once at war within yourselves will finally have complete satisfaction, well-being, and happiness because it's from God and because it's of God. The God of peace himself is our source of sanctification. So when you're going about your day and you're praying, you're asking God to strengthen you as you say no to sin, remember this, God is a source. He is that strength. He is that satisfaction and he empowers you to say no to sin. Again, this is what is going to enable you to do the very imperatives Paul commanded. I mean, you want to encourage the faint-hearted? You want to help the weak? You want to be patient? You don't want to hold fast to what is good? You want to abstain from every form of evil? You must recognize that the source of your doing is from God himself, the God of peace. So listen here. If you fail to believe this truth, you will grow tired of your own work, your own doing. And here's the reason. You cannot sanctify yourself. Peace comes from Jesus Christ through the gospel. The whole point as to why Paul follows this verse with prior imperatives is because he wants the church to grasp the truth of the power of God in the work of his people. Next, we find that in this verse that God is concerned with our sanctification. God is concerned with our sanctification. Now may the God of peace, look at this word here, himself. May the God of peace himself Friends, you may care about growing in grace and holiness. You may be a serious Bible-believing Christian who desires to grow in grace and peace. But I want you to know this. God cares more about your sanctification than you do. God cares more about your sanctification than you do, which means he will not give up on you. Why? Because his purpose is to sanctify you. And what does it say? Himself. That's his purpose, to do it himself. And so it's, I could thought of an example, sort of like a parent that tends to a child's physical growth. You know, even before um, the baby is out of the womb, the, the mother is taking care of the baby, right? They're thinking about healthy choices. They're, they're thinking about doing healthy things for the baby, and so as the baby enters the world, many sacrifices take place to care for the child. Sleepless nights, right? There's a lot of unselfishness on the parents to do everything they can to make sure the child is properly cared for, their, 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 their physical, their emotional health. And so as you continue to raise your children, you care more, again, for their spiritual health as well. But know this, God is even more committed to your spiritual health, your spiritual holiness than you are. And that's a good thing. As parents make sacrifices for their children completely, God essentially does the same thing because God really made the greatest sacrifice. God willed that his son be killed in order to, be, to completely sanctify us himself. 
And so that's the beauty of the gospel. God sacrificed his son for our spiritual health. God did not kill his son in order that you continue on sinning, but you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, Ephesians 2.10. The word completely here in our text means holy or entirely. It's our whole being. That means God is working on that entire list of 17 imperatives and everything else that encompasses the Christian life. But hear this, it may take a while. It may take years for you to deal with your ongoing sin, your ongoing struggles. But know that God is deeply concerned for you and he is at work in your sanctification. Not only is God concerned for your sanctification, he is committed to our sanctification. He is committed to our sanctification. Now, there have been some theological controversies into what the whole spirit and soul and body mean here in our text. But Paul does not mean for this to be a controversial statement. So I'm not going to go there because that's not where the text takes us. What this clause means is that there's, this is the entirety of human nature. It's more for emphasis on the entire person. And so it's not a controversy. What Paul means here is that God is completely committed to the entire human nature of man. Now the question is, to what? What is he committed to? Look at the next phrase. Be kept blameless. Be kept blameless. So God will not only make you completely perfect, but will keep you until the very end. I mean, God is protecting you. He will keep you to the very end. You know, when our, when our daughter started crawling and, and walking, we sort of put all these gates around the house. And so our home sort of looked like a prison because there's gates everywhere. You couldn't get anywhere without stepping over a gate. And so we wanted to protect her. We wanted to keep watch over her. We wanted to make sure she was safe. And so our parent, as a parent, our goal was to protect our child from anything. And so in the same way, God is keeping watch over your life. He puts safeguards in place around your life. And so he will keep you. Maybe not so much physically at times, but he will keep you. He will protect you more spiritually. One writer put it this way, God's purpose is to completely completely hold you and not allow you to be snatched from the palm of his hand to the end. And so I want you to realize this morning that God hasn't given up on you. That you're here this morning because of that very reason. Not because you haven't given up, but because God hasn't given up on you. You know, there are many times where because of sin, you automatically sort of exclude yourself from his hands because of that indwelling sin. And so in the bruised reed, this book called Bruce Reed by Richard Sibbs, he kind of reminds us, the elders read it together. He says, but know that Christ never excludes you. Even though you may exclude yourself so many times, Christ never excludes you so long as you continually trust in his saving work. So that song, and Tim knows this all too well, that song, He Will Hold Me Fast, is really one of my favorite songs. Um, And because it's so reassuring to me. 
Because in, in times of, of facing various struggles, various sins, anxiousness, maybe tension within my heart, at times, our grips can only hold so tightly onto Christ. But the greatness of the gospel is that it is Jesus that holds so tightly onto us, and he will hold us fast to the very end. God's will is to sanctify us by keeping us, by being our source of power, by being committed to us. He is concerned with our sanctification. He is committed to us. And Paul reassures us of God himself, and he hammers this point home in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. Notice this phrase, he will surely do it. And so that's a promise for all of us, that God is faithful in being committed to our holiness. And I'm going to talk more about this later, but for now we have to move on. Not only are we reminded of God's power in us through, through Paul's prayer, we also see the presence of God in the life of the church, the presence of God in the life of the church. These are parting requests from Paul. Parting requests from Paul. Now, the thrust of this point is that whether we, we are praying together or fellowshipping together or opening the word together, know that God is present in all our activities as a church. Prayer, fellowship, sitting under the word of God, God is present as we come together on Sunday mornings. Therefore, the first thing we see in verse 25 is this, the presence of God through prayer. <coughs> The presence of God through pr prayer. Notice Paul's request, brothers, pray for us. And so let me shift our focus on this request. First, the term brothers really has already been discussed many times this past month. I mean, it's a term that includes both men and women in the church. And so what Paul is addressing here is sort of family in the context of church. And so I want us to be reminded of who actually, what, what's Paul asking for here? And who, and the person who's asking it. Notice, it's the Apostle Paul that's asking this request. Brothers, pray for us. I want you to notice that. The greatest missionary in the New Testament, other than Jesus Christ, is asking for prayer. The one who saw Christ face to face on the road to Damascus He's saying, we need God. Pray for us. And so there is a sense of humility here in our text in this request. Paul, the pastor, the apostle, the missionary is saying, pray for us. And I think it's only fitting to be reminded of Paul's ministry again and what he faced. And so you could find that in 2 Corinthians 11 Verses 24 to 28, I'm going to read that for us. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Unfrequent journeys and dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, 
in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now pay attention to verse 28. And apart from other things, there is this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Do you see what Paul went through? And so Paul rightfully requests that the church pray for him and the rest of the leaders. And so put simply, are you praying for the church and its leaders? Paul did, I mean, Chris did a, a great job in sort of um, going through those imperatives about sort of respecting the elders. And so are you praying for the leaders here at Gateway? You know, one of my favorite times of the month is prayer meeting. And, you know, prayer meeting is such a special time. And I'm not saying you have to go to prayer meeting to pray, but you understand the presence of God in prayer when you pray with the saints at Gateway. Right? You're praying with the saints of the church. You're praying for the church. And so you understand the presence of God when we pray together as a church. And it's such a sweet, sweet sound when you hear our people lifting up their requests of the body before the Lord. So are you praying? Are you understanding that God is in the presence of our prayers? Prayer helps us see the power and presence of God as he works through his people and the leaders of the church. Second, we find the presence of God through encouragement, the presence of God through encouragement. Verse 26, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. You know you are in the presence of God when you are surrounded by brothers and sisters in the Lord as we are today. Therefore, what we find here is Paul addressing again both men and women in an intimate matter by using the word brothers. And again, this has been mentioned so many times. There's special attention to this language because we've all been brought into the fellowship because of our faith in the gospel. And so we are a family of the living God. Nevertheless, Paul offers encouragement by this holy kiss. And so Rod mentioned this a while back and how we greet each other in different cultures. You know, I could speak personally about Filipino culture. Specifically, in a Filipino church, you will find that when you go there, people will warmly greet you, but also they will do this sort of cheek-to-cheek action in, in sort of kissing you. And so it's, there's nothing sort of sexual about it, but it's more saying, look, we are brothers and sisters in the Lord. When we were in Austria a couple months ago, the, the church, and I think Europeans in general, they, they like to sort of kiss on both cheeks. And so what Paul is encouraging here really is an outward physical expression of true Christian love to what was acceptable at the culture at that time. And so here's what he's doing. He's saying, look, convey our affections, convey our love, convey our greetings to the church. And so it may look a little different in our, in our context but really, church, listen here. There needs to be an expression of godly, respectable affection because we are family. We are part of God's family. The intention is godly love and not intimacy. So, church, are we continually showing Christ-like affection to each other? Are we happy to see each other Sunday after Sunday? 
Are we conveying our affections, our love in greeting one another? I mean, we're stuck with each other forever, whether you like it or not. And so um, you need to get used to it. And I know some of you really do not like that statement, but we are stuck together. No, I, I love everyone here. Um, but we're stuck together forever. Next, we find the presence of God through his word, through scripture. The presence of God through his word. Verse 27, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, this is strong language. And so this strong language can be confusing to commentators. The phrase, I put you under oath before the Lord is very strong. And, and Paul is trying to make a point here. And really, what, what commentators are saying is that he's really speaking from conviction. He's speaking from the heart. And so he knows the church is a solid church, but there is something in this phrase that Paul wanted to make, sort of make clear. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, read this letter, read this word. The question is, why? Some say that Paul knew the letter was written under divine inspiration. As Paul was writing this letter, he knew he was under direction of the Holy Spirit. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13, and it's up here. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So Paul knew that this is God, that this was God's inspired word, right? There is authority here. And this should remind us about the importance of God's word in our own lives. If you recall the instructions to Paul's uh, young disciple, Timothy, he says this, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And so Paul knew the church needed the word of God read to them back then. And so it's just as important that we read it to each other today. It's why we, we read the word of God together before the sermon. It's why um, our elders sort of open up the services with the word of God because there is importance in reading the word of God out loud to our people because the presence of God is found in the word of God. So we find prayer, we find fellowship, we find the word of God. All this reflect God in many ways. And so to ask the questions again, are we praying for each other? Our leaders, our church, are we displaying godly affection toward one another? Are we reading the word of God, edifying each other? Well, let's go to our last point this morning. We find the power of God through our sanctification, the presence of God in the life of the church. Lastly, we see the promise of God to the church, the promise of God to the church. It's what I call a parting blessing from Paul. And it's found in our last verse. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul ends his benediction with something we're all too familiar with in Paul's letters. I mean, you could trace this type of of benediction in mostly all of Paul's letters. It's quite common for Paul to include a parting word, notice that word, grace, to the church. 
And so in 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, you'll find the same thing. God, Paul sort of had a similar blessing in his greeting to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look here. Grace to you and peace. There was that word again. The beginning of the Christian life is grace through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. The end of the Christian life here on earth is continuing on with the hope of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Paul begins with grace and he ends with grace. Why is that? Because Paul knew grace is the blessing that we need. Grace is the blessing that we need. And Paul knows this firsthand. That's because Paul would just be another man if grace did not come to him on the road to Damascus. Let me say this again. Paul would just be another man if grace did not come to him on the road to Damascus. And I think that's why this word grace filled Paul's letters as a concluding blessing to the churches because grace chased him as he killed Christians. As he was running from God, grace chased him. And you know what? You and I would be destined for wrath if Jesus Christ never came to us on the road to destruction. Grace came to Paul on the road to Damascus but listen, dear friends, grace came to us on the road to destruction. Here's what I mean. In Ephesians 2, and I love that first song this morning. We were sort of talking about this. In Ephesians 2, it starts off that we were dead. That's really just the plainest translation. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That was our road to destruction we are destined for Revelation 16. That's what Alex read a couple weeks ago. We are destined for God's wrath. Because of sin, we were on the road to wrath, to destruction. We really had no hope, dear friends. You know, I once heard an illustration in the gospel. I'm sure some of us have heard this before, where the picture of our salvation story is that we were once drowning in the ocean and so God sent his son as our life saver. And all we had to do was touch it to be saved. But church, that is not an entirely accurate view of the gospel. Because in the text I just read to you, we were not simply drowning in the ocean. But we were dead at the bottom of the sea, plunged in the depths of our sins. But hear me out. Hear me out here. But God, but God, one of the most beautiful phrases you will ever read in the Bible, but God, being rich and mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to leave the heavenly kingdom, to save us from the depths of our sins, 
from the bottom of the ocean where he pulled us out and he breathed life into us. Because even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, there goes that word, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, in living in the light of his return, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, that is the gospel of grace. And that grace drove Paul to bless the church with these parting words. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The grace in which you were once saved be with you always. Think about that. Grace drove Paul's life and it is grace that will drive the church. It is grace that will drive this church. John Stott said this, if a local church is to become a gospel church, it must not only receive the gospel and pass it on, but also embody it in a community life of mutual love. Nothing but the grace of Christ can accomplish this. Paul's last word is grace to you because that is what he received and what the church always, always will need. God has always been faithful in saving you and keeping you, and that is grace. Allow me to close here, just sort of thinking about our theme this morning. Our theme is living in light of his coming. It's a theme that sort of Rod led us to. And dear friends, we are living in light of his coming right now. And so we must think in the context of this letter. We must think in the context of our own lives. And so as I mentioned Previously, Gateway, you are a faithful church. I truly believe that. You aspire to live and follow under the authority of God's word, seeking to love one another and make his name known, really, among the nations. You really do know, apply, and proclaim. You live out that goal. And so I want you to know that in living in such a sexualized culture where persecution is before us and death surrounds us, we must always look to the one who is faithful, the one who will carry us through this life on to the next. Brothers and sisters, Paul wanted the church in Thessalonica to understand that it is God who is faithful, not himself or the other leaders like Silas or Timothy. It is God that is faithful. It is God that will lead you to the very end. Therefore, we could all look at moments like this where God has sort of placed us here, whether temporary or long-term, to love, to hope, and to encourage one another until he calls us home. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And so my concluding charge to you, beloved gateway, is to hold fast. 
because God is faithful and he will surely keep you to the very end. May grace be with you all. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this parting blessing, this parting benediction is so simple yet so deep and really is a reminder on how faithful you are to us. And so however long we've been Christians, Lord, we think back to where you first saved us, to where you first opened our eyes. And Lord, we are sitting here because you are faithful to us. You have been faithful in carrying us and our families. And so no one is here by accident. And so, Lord, we pray for this church, for Gateway Bible Church, that you will continue to bless them, that grace will be with them, that grace will carry them for many more years as they meet here Sunday after Sunday. May they be bold in proclaiming the gospel. May they be bold in following you. And Lord, it's really not about the church, but it's really about you. And we understand that you are faithful. And so we sing these words, great is thy faithfulness. Lord, bless this church, O Lord. We love you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.